This is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. I'm here with my colleague, David Tainter. Hey, Josh. It's co-host. been a minute. Yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a while. A lot we, of news we, since we last uh, yeah, were on the I, air. I feel like there were, what, two, a good two weeks, maybe maybe three weeks. I was on vacation. Right. We had a couple other, uh, you know, a couple other of us are on vacation, but we're back now, uh, you know, and... and we're in a we're in a funny news period because actually when I was um, I was on vacation with my family for about uh, eight or nine days, and during that we had the Mueller report be delivered to the Department of Justice. Uh, a couple days of waiting, and this uh, bar letter that is now kind of like that's TM after it, right? <laughs> um, we, we had that, and then we then everybody was. You, you know, kind of the president is out sort of like high-fiving the world and, and, and kind of, uh, you know, kind of beating up his perceived enemies. And even though I will say I thought it was a greatly premature, it's certainly true. A lot of, a lot of uh, Trump's opponents were very crestfallen, like, oh, my God, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and now, just in the last two or three days, you're having people kind of come forward and saying people who, who, you know, from the direction of the special counsel's office right. with a little kind of fuzziness. Yeah, it's sort of third hand in a way, right? It's people from Mueller's team apparently talking to other government officials who are in turn talking to reporters, right? right? Well, I think there's, I think there's a mix there of... Like the first piece that came out was from the Times, and I got that piece read like it was largely based on sources at the DOJ and around Bill Barr. Um, and I got the sense that that was sort of trying to get ahead of what they knew was sort of uh, bubbling. There's there's all sorts of, in some cases, legal, and in other cases, just sort of professional. You want a little if you're that person, you want a little distance, right? Um, in any case, so this is all moving, this is all moving, uh, you know, pretty rapidly now. And we're going to talk about that today and try to get a sense of, of what's going on. And we have a guest who's, who's a, 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 a perfectly uh, timed and positioned uh, guest to tell us about this, Garrett Graff. Let me introduce you, G- Garrett. How are you doing? You're you're calling us from Vermont. I am. Thanks yeah. For having me today. So I know, and and we are going to we're going to talk about the book a little later in in uh, this episode of the podcast. Basically, now you a number of years ago, uh, you 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 wrote uh, I. I think the biography of 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 Bob Mueller, and then ju- now you have a new ebook which is called Mueller's War, which which is 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 based, as I understand it, interviews that you did with Mueller after the original biography, but before he became special counsel on his experiences during the Vietnam War. Do I basically have that right? Exactly. So these are. Um, uh, it, it, the first time and, and really the only time he's ever spoken in depth about his formative experience in Vietnam, um, which I'd never had occasion to use until he became special counsel. Right, right. Okay, so 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 we so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna talk about the book and but but before that we're gonna we're gonna mine your brain for every 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 insight we can get on what is going on here and what is what is the deal with this report and the bar letter and all this kind of stuff. Before we do that, I have a couple housekeeping messages. Uh, 
uh, Garrett, have you ever, have you ever, are you, are you a, are a cold brew iced coffee fan? Uh, I am a very passonate local hot coffee person here. In interesting, Vermont. interesting. Okay, you're from a different it's tribe in, than it's I, cold I am. In Vermont, but, so, yeah, yeah. I, okay, I get that. It's cold. So I, yeah. anyway, we're we're very big into cold brew iced coffee, and our sponsor happens to be Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. So, do you want to become a true office hero? Treat yourself and your coworkers to the best iced coffee in the country with a 42 serving bag and box from Grady's Cold Brew. Now shipping to 20 states on the East Coast, probably maybe even Vermont. I don't know. We can we can ask the Grady's folks about that. Uh, <laughs> now shipping to 20 states on the East Coast. This coffee concentrate pours from a spigot just like boxed wine. So help yourself to cup after cup of Grady's signature New Orleans style flavor. Freshly brewed with chicory for just a hint of all natural sweetness. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Now, in in other Grady's news, there was they were like on Colbert, right? Like the the the, the queer eye, the queer the eye cast guys, of queer eye. and like Colbert gave him some Grady's from, the, and apparently they weren't they weren't quite up. To well, they it. didn't realize it was a concentrated coffee. But, but let's be thing. honest, Is it, who who at TPM? Do, do you? I have to admit, it? I put a little water in mine uh, and then a little milk it. as well. So yeah. all right, well, sorry, I, I put milk in, but I mean, like, it's not. I mean, here here's the thing with Grady's cold brew. Calling it a concentrate is like a conceit or kind of like an <laughs> affectation. You're really, I mean, if you're really a a a true uh, a cold brew iced coffee person, you know, it's not a concentrate. You're just supposed to drink it. But anyway, okay. So that's that is that. Now another thing, another another special deal closer to home. The way we pay for everything at TPM is through memberships. Becoming a member means you get extra stories that we write. You get a, you get fewer ads on the site. You get to post in our in access to our special members forum and you get a bunch of other good stuff but it also means you support our journalism and you support this podcast this podcast isn't just dropping out of the sky it's made by tpm media which is the uh you know the the huge corporation that publishes the talking (laughs) points memo website uh but so now you are now maybe you're already a member which is awesome maybe you're you're already a subscriber to prime but we have a special offer for podcast listeners only so, like, don't tell someone who's not listening to the podcast about this about this deal. This is only for you. You get 20% off a, an annual TPM Prime membership. And all you have to do is to get to that offer, you go to talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal. Talkingpointsmemo.com slash deal. And you get this 20% off. And, and like... Who wouldn't want that? Yeah. Who course, doesn't want to course, save a little money? Uh, yeah. And everybody wants a deal. Everybody wants to know you're, you know, uh, making good use of, 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 uh, of their money. All right, Garrett. So l- l- what is your best guess knowing, you know, knowing Bob Mueller, knowing the, as much as we can know about the sort of the office he put together for this investigation, they have been quiet for 10 days or so, but stuff is starting to kind of dribble out now. What do you think is happening in the background? I have to say, I, I can't, I, I'm really astonished at how much Bill Barr has fumbled the rollout of this. Um, uh, you know, g- given that uh, presumably everyone has been thinking about how to do this and what form it would take for quite some time now, uh, it's amazing to see how Barr has stumbled his way through, um, you know, really the last two weeks since this report came down. 
and and in part, I think that that's uh, tied pretty directly to that top line co- conclusion letter that he issued last Sunday, where he laid out, um, you know, that the uh, that Mueller didn't find was not able to establish a conspiracy. And that Barr decided that he didn't see that there was evidence uh, that supported an obstruction charge. Um, but, it, it, you know, right from that first start, it was a suspicious letter. Um, it, it was a three-page uh, memo, really, without the, the signature blocks on it and without the, the signatures. And... It contained only 65 words from Robert Mueller himself, right. none of which even represented a complete sentence. Right. Um, and, <laughs> you know, you guys know as journalists, there's a lot of mischief that you, that you can get up to with partial quotes and partial sentences. Um, and, and you sort of have to imagine here that this was a case where. Uh, uh, you know, even the sentences that he, Barr was quoting from were more nuanced than Barr was letting on, which was why he was just quoting the partial uh, chunks. You know, you almost, you almost that, get a sense when you read that that like, you I imagine people like with like lead gloves handling something radioactive and only like getting like a few like a chunk of a sentence that we can that we can touch without getting zapped or radiation poisoning or something like that so yeah i'm sorry i i interrupted you you were saying yeah absolutely and that when you look at the language that Mueller was using and that Barr was using to summarize Mueller's work um you know it it seems pretty clear that there was a lot of potential ground that Mueller's report could cover, uh, even without bringing criminal charges. Um, And and what I mean by that is, you know, literally on the obstruction side, it said, this report does not exonerate the president. Um, So really the opposite of the total exoneration Mm -hmm. claim that the president quickly trotted out. And then on the conspiracy side, um, it, it notably, uh, you know, didn't say the president, you know, there was no evidence of a conspiracy. It said they weren't able to establish a conspiracy. Right. And so, you know, it, and, and you know the, the legal world quite well, you know, lawyers use language very precisely. And that was not Bob Mueller saying uh, it, it was unlikely to be Bob Mueller saying this was all completely innocent behavior. Right. <laughs> because the language that Barr used in, in describing this um, was very specific and set a very high bar. Um, and, and, and I mean that in sort of two ways. One, Barr defined how Mueller had defined conspiracy and collusion. And that that included uh, only dealings with the Russian government. Right. And so, you know, you could have had any matter uh, or means of a conspiracy or collusion 
with non-government officials, um, you know, let's say Moscow real estate developers, right. let's say right. Ukrainian oligarchs, um, that would not have been covered by Mueller's report. And then even once you got into that, the, the phrasing that it said, this does not establish a conspiracy, what that means is not, uh, that covers really absolutely everything on the spectrum from total innocence and nothing but an incredibly weird uh, series of coincidences and misunderstandings, up to and including a preponderance of evidence, meaning uh, you know more than 51% of the evidence points to a conspiracy, up to and including a clear and consistent evidence of a conspiracy, which would be the civil charge, right. uh, you know, sort of the civil uh, burden of proof, uh, but would still stop short of what would be necessary to bring a criminal charge, which is confidence uh, that, uh, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, using the standards of evidence before a reasonable jury that you could gain a conviction with 85% certainty. So Bob Mueller could be sitting there saying, I'm 84% sure there was a conspiracy here, but I still don't see a criminal charge that I can bring. You know, one, and that, yeah. that's, that's, a, just, that's just a huge range of behavior and almost uh, you know, inevitably meant that the actual answer was going to be worse for the president than the victory lap he set out and did last week. Right. Now, well, one thing I was, you know, when I when I saw those 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 uh, sentence fragments, and 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 um, you know, it sounds like we're talking about when when uh, uh, they're called epigraphers. Uh, it's kind of historian that looks at like you know uh, letters carved in stones in in like you know ancient Mesopotamia. We're talking about like the. Uh, these sentence fragments, one of the things that I was tried to do was like, all right, wh- what could I put as the first clause of this sentence? And there's, there's a surprisingly uh, wide variety of things that would make a perfect, that would make perfect sense and actually would m- create a logic for using that did not establish that you could, you know, something to the effect of, while we found the president and his and his people did all sorts of awful shit, we nonetheless did not establish that there was a conspiracy. Like establish right. is a very specific. It didn't quite get to that level. We were not able to prove it. Um, and 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 an entire other thing, kind of in there was we think we know at least with Bob Mueller that they thought he had some really key information. And they were never able to secure his cooperation. So it seems at least plausible that part of the story is they thought there were people who might know more, but they could not get, you know, they could not secure uh, that cooperation. But let me ask you this, because, I mean, I agree with you. It's it's sort of like what was Barr thinking to the extent that there would still be a new, you know, a journalism industry a week later, right? <laughs> but right. but we also have to admit that man, for the first like four or five days, he was killing it. You know, I, I can all sorts of our colleagues out there on Twitter saying this is the day it all changed for Donald Trump. The cloud is gone. 
It's really, you know, it's, it's, yeah, you know, Mueller said he didn't exonerate him on obstruction, but basically this is, you know, complete exoneration. And I'm not going to call out any names, but these are, I'm not talking about like, you know, hacks who like, you know, do pro-Trump commentary on CNN or something. I mean, like really serious, good journalists. Um, so it really, it, it, it worked very, very well. Um, it, again, unless you kind of think like, okay, uh, is is this really going to stay secret forever? And is it really possible that, like, even if we assume that it is a, l- let's assume for the sake of conversation that the collusion part of the report basically says, you know, okay, there's Trump Tower meeting. There's this, you know, they're kind of talking about a hotel deal. But like at the end of the day, there's just not that much there. Yeah, there's some smoke, there's some bad judgment, but there's just not, you know, not that much there. Even that, even even based on like what we just saw in the indictments, th- that's going to look bad after you're jumping around saying, "Ah, oh, no collusion and 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 this was all a hoax." And what is So, how do we how, <laughs> how do we make sense of that? Because I don't, you know, what what, what was Barr thinking? Yeah, and and that's Part of what I'm confused by in this, um, you know, both uh, Barr's rollout of this, um, you know, even even for instance, withholding the total length of the report until really his third letter, right? Um, and that it, you know, we would have felt very differently uh, if. On in that first letter, uh, which was actually the second letter, his, his top line conclusions letter. Right. Um, he the, said the canonical he, bar uh, letter TM afterwards. Yes, exactly. Um, that he said, you know, this is a lengthy, meaty, four hundred page report that concludes the following, um, because it, it, it. The moment you sort of realize how deeply sourced and thorough this document likely is, um, it makes clear that the answer is likely highly nuanced. Um, And particularly, um, I think it's important to see Mueller's own framing of why he did not choose to make a traditional prosecutorial decision. Um, Was that, um, you know... I've spent a lot of time interviewing Mueller. I've followed his work for uh, a decade very closely. Um, The idea that Bob Mueller decided in his final act of a 50-year public career to not make a decision about the one thing he had been asked to make a decision about because it was just too hard seems unlike him. Right. And and so it seems entirely possible and perhaps even probable to me that Bob Mueller always had approached this with the idea that he wasn't going to bring a traditional prosecutorial decision on the instruction question, because when you get into whether you can charge the president with obstruction, you do, as Barr's letter says, get into complicated questions about fact and law. Right. And and that Mueller might very well have seen his role as being one focused on 
being an independent fact finder, using the tools of the criminal justice system to gather evidence that could be turned over to Congress to adjudicate as part of an impeachment process, uh, because that is the body that is constitutionally delineated to deal with questions of presidential malfeasance, that, um, you know, Congress is not held to a bar of whether there is a federal felony that can be established beyond a reasonable doubt. The president can be impeached for high crimes and misdemeanors, and that that is, you know, almost literally anything that Congress declares it to be. Right. So they could look at a situation and say, yeah, this isn't a provable RICO case uh, in, in federal court, but this is still behavior that we don't believe that a president of the United States should be engaged in. Um, for instance, we uh, do not believe that candidates for president should be encouraged if they are knowledgeable about a foreign adversary's attack on our democratic system to not report it, to not do anything about it, and in fact to welcome it and accept its help. Right. Uh, that that may not be a provable conspiracy, um, but you know that's just sort of something we don't want in our politics. Right. Sort of the the knowing passive recipient model, like we know we're right. doing it, not taking any overt action, but like bring it on. And I'm not going to tell exactly. anybody. Let me ask you this. Is it, it, does this seem, from what you know of Mueller, does this seem uh, you know, plausible, probable? And I think this kind of gets at what you were just talking about, that it seemed to me the most, I mean, as you said, I don't think Bob Barr and the team of people he put together does not seem like a low energy group. Like they just kind of weren't up to the challenge of making a decision. But that it seems to me that, especially in the obstruction front, in some ways, it is an extra prosecutorial judgment that is required. And you put someone like Bob Mueller in charge because he's a fact finder. He's a he's a he is a um, you know someone who who has a lot of investigative experience, law enforcement experience, um, is dogged, is a sort of a trusted person, or at least you know was a trusted person across the across the uh, the partisan divide. But when you get at you know. Is it okay for the president to use his legitimate constitutional powers in clearly corrupt ways? Should all that kind of stuff? It's it's it goes beyond what a prosecutor has unique insight on. Is that does that seem you know kind of consistent with the with the man you've 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 gotten to know and interviewed? Yeah, and that you know. One way that Mueller might have approached this is everyone short of the president is game for traditional prosecution, um, and the president himself, um, you know, I'm operating. I'm going to operate under the longstanding Justice Department policy that the president is not indictable uh, by the executive branch while in office, and instead, I'm going to use. Uh, I've been tasked by the Justice Department to gather evidence that could be turned over to Congress. Um, and that uh, Mueller, uh, you know, in some ways, that is uh, very akin to the role that we ask the intelligence community to play, um, which is, you know, they are to provide the set of facts that then others look at from a policy perspective. And that, uh, 
and that given that this was in many ways a counterintelligence uh, investigation, um, that strikes me as potentially a, in a framework that would have made a lot of sense for him to to pursue. By the way, there's there's another aspect to this on the counterintelligence front that I think people have glossed over of, uh, in the last two weeks, which is how the counterintelligence information separate from the Mueller report has been reported to Congress, which is that the FBI has briefed that information to what's called the Gang of Eight, which is the four leaders of the House and Senate Intelligence Committees and then the four leaders of the House and the Senate. And Now that has, I remember when they said they offered, that has happened now? Uh, um, I actually, uh, I, I, now that you mentioned, I've lost track of whether that. Uh, but they definitely offered, and happened. presumably they'll take a, that, take them up on it. Yes, um, and we wouldn't. I, I'm not even sure necessarily know if and when it has happened. Right. Um, right. But that's a significant development uh, in its own way because the Gang of Eight is a unit that is delineated in statute to be the recipients of the nation's most sensitive intelligence information. Um, The House and the Senate Intelligence Committees, uh, as a routine basis, uh, receive all sorts of intelligence information. And it's only stuff that is even more sensitive than that that uh, will be shared only with the Gang of Eight. And what that often means is that the Gang of Eight is being briefed on uh, ongoing operations. Like the Gang of Eight are the people that you call and say, uh, we're going after bin Laden tonight. We have operators in the air right now to kill or capture bin Laden. And that that is an instance where the fact that the FBI is only willing to brief the Gang of Eight and not the full House and Senate Intelligence Committees says to me that there's something ongoing about this hmm. counterintelligence investigation um, that is worth paying attention to. Um, right. That there is either ongoing signs of activity in this space that's particularly sensitive. There's ongoing involvement, possibly, of U.S. persons uh, is, is another thing that it could mean. But that there's something weird going on on the counterintelligence side of the Russian Russia investigation that remains too sensitive to share, as would be routine, with the full House and Senate intelligence committees. And I think that that's another aspect of this that's worth paying attention to as, as we await the full Mueller report, is that there's this whole other aspect to it that we that we won't ever see publicly, mm-hmm. but that is playing out and that there's plenty of reason to believe is still suspicious. And I, and I guess that even though, even though the gang of eight, and in this case, probably the Democrats among, you know, the, 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 the four Democrats, even though we probably will never know what they are told inescapably, it will inform their attitude or could inform their attitude towards the report and the necessity of making it, you know what I'm saying? That if, you know, if it comes out, they say like, you know, uh, the Russians still seem to have Donald Trump under some sort of, you know, pressure or something like that. I mean, I'm just, that's putting that out as a hypothetical. That's going to make them look a lot more seriously in what's included in the, in the, um, 
in in the report. And it's funny that when um, when we were in that few days of sort of you know no collusion, no obstruction, I'm vindicated, blah 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 blah. Even if you accept that on you know on its face, just as a thinking person, you're still left with what was that Helsinki, uh, Helsinki thing about? Like, what was going right. on there? Like, if, you know, because clearly something was not right. And um, whether or not there was a criminal conspiracy is sort of an entirely different question. But, like, something is up there. Uh, so let, let, let's shift to another question. And this is something where I think knowing Mueller is so key. The reports that we have seen so far basically say that, seem to say some subset of the people who worked on the, worked in the special counsel's office are disgruntled and they're talking. Okay. Um, and in that range of people, you've got a number of, I think about 19 or 20 lawyers, uh, about 40 FBI, uh, you know, officials. Some of those people are still in government. Some are now out of government, which, you know, kind of makes, makes it a little easier for them to talk. But in the background is Mueller. Now, um, I would assume that, well, I don't want to assume too much because I don't know the guy. Um, where do you think, where, where, think out loud for us based on what you know of him, where he figures in to what seems to be unfolding right now, which is to say that people who know what's in that report do not feel like Bill Barr accurately conveyed to the public what's going on. Where do you think he would figure in that? Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um, and uh, I have to assume that Mueller uh, believes, uh, probably rightly, that the full report or most of the report will come out in the near future. Um, and that you know, we'll clear the air, uh, when that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think Mueller is someone who worries a lot about his reputation or his legacy on a day to day basis. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he is not a Trump white house aide who realizes if you have 17 consecutive bad hours, you might be fired every time you go to the bathroom. Right. Right. Um, and, you know, Mueller has, uh, you know, weathered two and a half years, um, well, I guess two years of, of work. The investigation has been two and a half years, but Mueller's role has been two, really. Um, that, uh, and, and has done so utterly silently um, by his own choice. Right. Um, you know, remember... You know, Ken Starr used to give briefings at the end of his driveway. Every day, <laughs> I remember um, well, yeah. About how his investigation was going. And, and Mueller has never uttered a word publicly in his role as special counsel. Um, and the few times that he has uh, had announcements worthy of a public appearance, Rod Rosenstein has stepped out to do those for him. And so, uh, you know, I think that Mueller is probably... Uh, continuing his life and uh, sure that uh, everything will sort itself out. As someone who's talked to Bob Mueller, you know, at length, one of the things I've always kind of been curious about him, this is kind of a small thing, but his, uh, 
you know, his choice to basically only wear like a white button up dress shirt, right? To kind of create this appearance that he's totally neutral. He doesn't want to come off as, I don't know if it's, you know, uh, tilted one way or the other. Does that come from his military background, do you think? I mean, I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. So uh, that's actually a great question. And I couldn't have teed you up any better if I had uh, uh, been trying to feed you a question. The (laughs) answer about why Bob Mueller wears his uh, white shirt is literally the most interesting thing I've ever heard Bob Mueller say. And, uh, you know, he was infamous as FBI director for wearing these uh, white shirts and and really insisting that his uh, deputies and assistant directors around him wear white shirts. Um, And he would, in a good-natured manner, tease anyone who dared to come in with something like a blue shirt or, God forbid, a pink shirt. And he, uh, you know, this became sort of lore around him as FBI director, um, such that, you know, the first time I met him uh, when I was writing about him uh, in 2008, I, I knew that I was going to see him that day and I wore uh, a white shirt and joked about it with him. And I said, you know, I knew I was going to see you today and I uh, wore a white shirt. Um, And years after he was FBI director, I finally asked him at one point, you know, dude, what was the deal with the white shirts all the time? And he said, um, you know, remember, he became FBI director on September 4th, 2001, one week before 9-11. And he said about the white shirts, um, I knew that I was leading the FBI through the most wrenching change in its history. As he made remade the FBI from a domestic law enforcement agency into an international intelligence agency, you know, as he, as he shifted all of these resources from criminal work to counterterrorism work and brought in this whole new cadre of intelligence analysts to help process the information, um, help agents work better, uh, and and really modernize the FBI for a new century of threats. Uh, And he said, you know, I wore a white shirt every day in order to signal to the FBI workforce that this was still the FBI that they had joined, that the dark suit and the white shirt has been the FBI uniform since the day of J. Edgar Hoover, and that I wanted them, even as we were undergoing all of this change, to be able to look at uh, the uniform that I wore every day and know that it was still the thing that they had signed up to serve. And I thought it it, it was just such a fascinating answer to me. In, in terms of his approach to the work and the way and sort of evidence of how deeply he had thought about the institution that he was leading. So what is, so tell it so this the new book it's 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 Mueller's War and it's out as an ebook I think this week um, and as we said at the at, at the front it's based on interviews you did before he he took on the special counsel role but after the biography you wrote so. Tell us now. I, I, I think the the a good bit of the premise here is that this is his formative life experience, his his time serving in Vietnam. T- 
tell us about what you learned and what the book is about. Yeah, so the, the book tells the story of the year that he served in Vietnam. Um, he graduated from Princeton in 1966 at a time when there was not, uh, you know, when you, if you were a wealthy uh, white man coming out of an Ivy League school, you didn't generally have to go to Vietnam. Um, and he wanted to, um, and he signed up to serve and he signed up to serve really in the, just about the hardest possible way, which was, uh, as a Marine infantry, uh, fighting along the DMZ, uh, it, uh, with the Marine maneuver battalions and Mueller, uh, in many ways, this was the formative experience of his life. Um, and it's something that shaped who he is in, in ways big and small, um, you know, both his, his sense of uh, duty and honor um, down to literally the way that he wears his watch. Um, he still wears his watch on the inside of his wrist, which is the way that the Marines teach you so that you avoid uh, accidentally flashing someone uh, with your watch uh, if it catches in the sun on the battlefield. And so this was uh, an incredibly important experience for him, and one that he really excelled at um, in ways that uh, are, are, I think, interesting and surprising. Um, He was actually one of the, he did so well in officer candidate school that he was sent on to Army Ranger School, one of the only Marines in the entire country sent on to Army Ranger School, that really tough survival course uh, in uh, Fort Benning, Georgia. And then he was sent off to uh, Vietnam in the fall of 1968 after the Tet Offensive um, into some of the fiercest fighting that the U.S. faced in the entire Vietnam War. Um, He arrived uh, as the leader of 2nd Platoon Hotel Company, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marine, Regiment in Quang Tri Province, right along the DMZ in November 1968. And that was a time when there were 500,000 Americans in Vietnam. That was the peak of American involvement in Vietnam. And yet, 80% of all of the casualties among that entire population were coming out of just the 25,000 Marines in those maneuver battalions along the DMZ. I mean, it was incredibly fierce, hard fighting against the North Vietnamese Army. And this was where Muller um, did six months of combat, um, where he established himself as a very able leader, very respected leader, uh, and literally very cool and collected under fire. Um, He... Uh, received a Bronze Star with Valor for uh, his leadership in the Battle of Mutter's Ridge in December 1968, uh, where he helped rescue uh, two wounded Marines, one of them mortally wounded, and bring them back to American lines. And then in April 1969, so 50 years ago this month, actually, uh, he himself was shot. Um, uh, uh, during an ambush uh, of a platoon uh, uh, that his platoon was raced into battle to help, and he uh, was shot through the leg by an AK-47, um, medevaced out of the jungle, um, and finished out his 
his one year tour um, working with the um, working with a marine commander on the staff there in Vietnam. And Mueller really loved being a Marine um, and thought at one point of making a career out of being a Marine. Um, And it has that experience has given him this incredible sense of perspective that he talks about in how, um, you know, I think one of the things a lot of people misunderstand about him is he says he's never done anything and will never do anything again as hard as leading men in combat in Vietnam. And so leading the special counsel's office, you know, this incredibly important politically charged investigation, potentially, uh, you know, the most uh, politically charged investigation in the history of American politics, um, uh, I think probably from Bob Mueller's perspective is no more than the third hardest job he's ever had in his life, that he, um, you know, certainly after leading men in Vietnam and then, uh, you know, after leading the FBI post 9-11. So I think he brings to this role just this incredible perspective uh, and grounding in ways that is, uh, you know, frankly puzzling uh, to a lot of people who don't know him well. Yeah, I suppose he's not going to be intimidated by a few Trump tweets compared to, you know, serving in combat. Well, I would also think that 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 uh, um, that probably means that he's not going to lose too much sleep if if uh, if we go a couple, uh, you know, several news cycles with with Trump crowing about being totally vindicated. He's not going to not going to lose a great deal of, 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 of sleep over that. Is, is there anything else from that, from, from those interviews and that, you know, kind of talking to him about that, about that part of his life that, that gives you a sort of additional perspective into how this investigation has, has, has gone just as a kind of a last question to, to frame this up. I, I take, I take your point though, the kind of the, the sort of impassive, nature of his of his behavior during this investigation is maybe the is maybe the most obvious thing of not getting baited by Trump, not, you know, just kind of whatever, you know, talk, talk, talk. Yeah. And I think that Mueller has realized that sort of the one thing that is holding this investigation together uh, is Mueller's integrity um, and his view, you know, the view of him in Washington, that he is someone who is and always has been above day-to-day politics. Right. Um, and, and in some ways, by the way, I think that that's the only reason that people put real stock in Barr's letter to begin with, was the idea that, you know, Mueller uh, could be trusted uh, to have completed a thorough investigation. And if Mueller said there was no there there, right. then there's no there there. Right. Um, and that... Um, you know, in some ways, the uh, the nuclear option that has always existed for Bob Mueller has been to say, um, you know, however quietly or publicly, um, you know, I wasn't able to do the investigation I wanted to do, mm-hmm. uh, or that's not what my investigation found. Um, right. And that uh, in some ways, the fact that we are 
seeing rumblings of the latter, um, you know, should really give us pause to let's wait and see what Mueller has said himself about the work that he's done. Right. So, okay. So the book is Mueller's World. Where can people buy it? Because it's something you go on Amazon and it's going to be, it's out this week. Is it available now? How do people want to pick it up? How do they do it? It's available now um, through the web publisher Scribd. Okay. Um, the, the website Scribd, uh, S-C-R-I-B-D.com, and they have a new um, program of publishing original journalism, uh, sort of, and, and this is uh, one of the first Scribd originals. Cool, cool. All right, so you go to Scribd.com and you can buy it there. Uh, I want to remind everybody else that there's other there's other commerce to be to be had here. Uh, remember, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee is a sponsor of the Josh Marshall Podcast. Ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's promo code TPM. Also remember, uh, special 20% off Prime memberships for only, absolutely only for podcast listeners. Go to Talking Point memo.com slash deal for that and uh garrett thank you so much i i I, it's it's um i i've you know uh been been uh reading your writing uh for a very long time and always interested especially on on the Mueller front what you have to say so thank you so much for joining us oh it's my pleasure it's great to talk to you all right thanks so much and we will talk to everybody else in a week